So I showed it to the doctor, and well, she said it's smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're talking all about freelancing. What does it mean to be a freelancer working on the web? And how can you manage the ups and downs? We talked to someone who knows their freelance hawk from a handsaw, Liz Elcote. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a brand new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In the article, Create Once, Publish Everywhere with WordPress, Leonardo Losovitz demonstrates how content can be delivered via the WordPress headless API to your website, AMP sites, mobile apps and elsewhere, all while being managed centrally within one CMS. In Speed Up Your Website with WebP, Suzanne Skacker brings us up to speed with the WebP image format, shows the performance advantages gained from it, and demonstrates how to simplify the conversion of JPEGs to WebP using key CDN. Fans of writing a multiplayer text adventure engine in Node.js parts 1 and 2 will love part 3, creating the terminal client. Fernando Doglio continues his in-depth series, and you can find parts 1 and 2 linked from the article. In a spooky post for Halloween, Suzanne Skacker, remember her, gives four signs your website feels more like a haunted house than a welcoming home. What makes a website feel abandoned? Is your site making visitors nervous? Grab a flashlight and read this one under the blankets to find out more. And in Things We Can't Yet Do in CSS, Rachel Andrew looks at some common layout patterns that we can't yet do on the web and the CSS specifications that might let us achieve them in the future. From floats to multicol to grids, we take a tantalizing peek into what might be coming down the road for CSS layouts. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. She's a UK-based designer who specializes in building digital brands. She's worked on campaigns with the likes of Great Ormond Street Hospital, the NSPCC, and the Brits. And she's also the host of the Elastic Brand Podcast, all about digital brand design, and co-host of the Freelance Web, a podcast for freelancers working on the web. So we know she loves design and she loves podcasts, but did you know she once felled a tree using nothing but a mango? My smashing friends, please welcome Liz Elcote. Hello. Hi. How are you? Do you know what, Drew? I'm smashing. Of course you are. Nailed it. So I wanted to chat about freelancing with you today. Great. You're a freelance digital brand designer. Is that is that how you'd describe yourself? I think I was trying to start the term digital brand designer, but I realize now they're just brand designers. So I probably now just go by the by the term brand designer. Everyone was like, mm, what's a what? A digital what? Uh, so yeah, I, I, I do brands that work both online and off now. Right. So you're not, a, not uh, you don't sort of pigeonhole yourself exclusively to, to online stuff? No, I tend to work, I tend to work with a lot of um, agencies that are maybe tech agencies, digital agencies. Um, so most of their uh, branding would appear, you know, online. They're not going to have huge kind of, um, you know, offline print billboards and things like that. But um, 
yeah, I mean, a good brand should work everywhere. So, so what does the day of a digital brand designer look like? <laughs> oh God, the truth or the? Uh... <laughs> I mean, if I if I was to um, you know pack up my bags, move to uh, a remote part of uh, Scotland, I'm thinking maybe an island, uh, mm-hmm. an island in Scotland. Uh, I'll take my cat. And uh, I say, right, I'm going to be a digital brand designer. Mm. Um, I'd wait typically six to eight weeks for my broadband to get installed. (laughs) And then it'd be rubbish when it... (laughs) And then it would be absolutely terrible. What would would my day look like as a freelancer doing the sort of work that you do? Oh, well, I guess uh, I always start my day off with a dog walk. So you might start yours off with a cat walk, possibly. So a good dog walk out in the open air um, always kind of gets me set up for the day. And then back to my desk, do kind of check emails, answer emails. Um, I tend to do the kind of creative work in the morning because I just find that's when I work best. So I'll do a couple of like hours of really focused creative work. So I'll turn off my phone, turn off my email and just really get my head down. And I can achieve so much in that period of time, probably more than um, I would do later on in the day for a longer period of time. So I do that and then kind of maybe check emails again, you know, lunch, get away from my desk for a little while. And then the afternoon will be sort of tidying up whatever's come in the morning, maybe writing for a magazine, maybe smashing magazine, Um, (laughs) um, or, you know, writing proposals or planning workshops, uh, stuff like that. So the really creative stuff happens in the morning and the kind of writing and stuff happens in the afternoon. And also, kind of do a bit of admin in the afternoon as well. I'm one of those weird people who love admin. I'm so weird. So I do tend to uh, quite enjoy that. It's just because it's, you know, it's like maths. There's an answer. So uh, whereas I find the creative, you know, can be, it can be draining because it's so open-ended. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the sort of differences between doing freelance creative work and freelance sort of technical work. Mm, absolutely. And also when I do the very rare occasions that I actually code anything these days, and that's never for clients, that's only for personal work, is a joyous time because there's a there's a right and a wrong way to do. I'm sure there's mm. lots of people out there who'd say, well, there's many right ways to do these things. But sort of with my knowledge, you do something and you have an answer and it's so nice. Uh, it's a real break from the, the creative. And I, I did a workshop a couple of weeks ago in Ireland. It was a new workshop that I've not done before. It was five hours. So it was a brand workshop and I needed to really make sure that I answered all the questions that I needed answering as well as making it engaging for for the nine or 10 people who are involved in it and relevant for them and fun as well. And it was just so, I loved writing it, but it was it wasn't until that moment that I actually delivered it to them and, you know, that we, we got to the 2 p.m. mark and it was all over. But I thought, oh, actually, that worked out. It was, again, that kind of like, I'm not sure how this is going to go. And I think that's the same with, you know, the kind of design side of what I do. It's, well, we'll, we'll find out how successful this has been when we, you know, hear back from them. So, yeah, it can be, it can be really draining. Mm. And I think that's why I really enjoy the admin side of things and also writing as well. Um, it seems to be more formulaic and I kind of have a little bit more confidence, I guess, doing that. I mean, I'm confident in what I do for a living, but you don't know until that moment the client <laughs> comes back to you. Yes, yeah. 
So, um, I mean, you mentioned spending time writing proposals uh, as one of the things you do in, mm. in your afternoons. How much of your time is, is sort of taken up in responding to proposals and calling clients and finding new work? Well, at the moment, um, a lot more than it used to be. I try to be a lot more proactive around those things now. I think it's a challenge as a brand designer. It's not quite as straightforward, I think, as with other parts of our industry, because branding is a, often a really big project for, for a company and they don't do it regularly. It's not like we need updates to our site or we want to change this part of our site or whatever. It's sort of like we've had the same brand for four years, five years. It needs, you know, we need an overhaul or we're a startup. It's a, it's a big decision for people. So I'm not constantly bombarded with inquiries, but when people do inquire, often means that they're very serious about it and it's a big financial commitment for them as well and it can be quite a traumatic experience for them because they think they're one thing and they're now discovering that they're maybe something else the proposals for me I probably write one or two every week or fortnight but I really take time with them they take me a couple of days a couple of afternoons to write because I I used to just kind of bang out a quick proposal sort of just outlining what they need and what I can do for them but I think a lot of people do that and it doesn't set you apart I was going to work with uh, Christopher Murphy on a project and he in the end didn't end up coming in on the project but we wrote a proposal together and he just completely changed the way I wrote proposals he changed them so professionally really engaged the 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 client and their needs and from that moment onwards I was writing them like that. And um, anyone else who kind of seen my proposals, if I bring in other people into projects, they'll be like, wow, your proposal's like a game changer. I'm like, well, I can't take any credit for that. But um, yeah, it really has made a difference. So when I write them, I really make a concerted effort to make sure that they are very, very pertinent to that particular client. And then do you sort of send them off and hope for the best? Or do you sort of talk through on a call? Or If we've got to a proposal stage... Because they're a time-consuming commitment, I feel that I've got to a point where they're very committed to me and maybe one or two other people. And, you know, I know they're not just kind of fishing around a whole group of people. And we've probably had a video call by then as well. Yeah, I'll send a proposal over and I'll say we can schedule a call to have a chat through. And sometimes they want to do that and sometimes they're like, no, it's fine, don't worry. And then they just come back to me like a week later, you know, like, yes, great. I tend to find that if I haven't heard from them within a week they're not probably going to go with me. And that's always quite a red flag. If, you know, they come back three weeks later or a month later and say, we want to work with you, I think, "Mm, okay, that's taken a very long time. Like, what's this project going to pan out like if that's how long it takes you to make that kind of decision? But yeah, that tends to be generally have a chat through on a video call once that's gone over. Yeah, I know from stuff I've done in the past, the turnaround time can really vary, can't it? Between you can have people who take a couple of hours to read through what you've sent Mm. and and respond straight away. And sometimes you you think a project has completely gone away. And then three months later. Yeah, I had one of those recently, actually. I had like a really, you know, quite serious inquiry. And basically they were like, yes, we want to go with you. Can you just put a proposal together? So put the proposal together, sent it over, didn't hear from them, chased them up, didn't hear from them again, chased them up again. And, you know, it was a good five weeks and I thought well I've not heard from them this is definitely not going to happen you know it's a shame I, I sort of put in my emails always very polite but you know just let me know if you don't want to go with me you know just so I know and sort of any feedback would be great didn't hear anything 
they came back out of the blue not long ago and said, yeah, sorry, just been really busy. And you're like, wow, oh my God. But I think as a freelancer, you just, you know, when you're on your own, stuff comes in, you react to it. So you kind of expect other people to work like that. And I find when I work with, so maybe a company of one or a small agency, they do react really quickly. They don't need to take time to think of stuff. But when I work with big agencies, they often take a good week because they, you know, you have the person in charge of the project, but then they need to then go off to their stakeholders and have a chat with them about everything. And they're all really busy. So they need to schedule a meeting and, you know, it tends to be a bit longer. So there's no hard and fast rules, unfortunately. (laughs) Other than the more stakeholders there are involved, the uh, longer everything is going to take. If there's there's more than maybe two or three stakeholders involved, I'm always slightly, you know, dubious about the whole situation. I had one not long ago and there was a board of 10 people involved in deciding about the direction a brand was going to go. It was just a long, painful, drawn out process. They were very mixed age group as well and sort of very different backgrounds. And it was as expected when that kind of thing happens. (laughs) I once did a project for a law firm partnership where everyone in the law firm, there were about a dozen people who were all equal partners. Oh, no. You know, obviously very bright switched on people with their own opinions about how everything should go. Yeah. And we didn't, we managed to get the site developed and it, it failed at the at the final hurdle of signing it off because mm. they, they couldn't get all 12 people to sign off and it just never, never launched. Completely <laughs> finished website and it just never launched. That's so sad. I always do try and say to clients that you need to have a, to someone take the lead on it. And someone who can say to even the stakeholders, look, you know, we've got to have a decision on this because it is impossible. I think when I used to work for the agency that I used to work for, we work with a lot of schools and, you know, we'd sometimes have a board of governors involved as well as head teacher, as well as, you know, three or four teachers who wanted to be involved as well. And they were hugely different age ranges and experience. And those projects were the same as yours. You know, it's almost impossible to sign off in the end. So you've got a good number of years experience doing this, uh, like me. I'm old. I'm old. <laughs> so it's a, a euphemistic way of, uh, yes, we, we have a lot of experience in our respective fields. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, have you always been freelance or did something come before that? Gosh, if we go back to the dawn of time, which is when I began my career, uh, I worked for an Australian bank way back then, um, just kind of in the uh, processing pensions and stuff like that. Because I was having a crisis. I was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Then I moved to working for a Danish company in marketing, which I really enjoyed. I enjoyed the creative side of that as well. I did art and fine art after school and I hadn't really done anything with that. And I felt that within that role, I was starting to do a little bit more with that. And then this thing called web design started, you know, popping up. And my sister said to me, you know, you really need to get in on this in the ground, you know, at the start. And I was like, mm-hmm, we'll give it a go, maybe. Yeah, you know, she's like, no, I really think it's going to be big. And um, <laughs> so I did a little night course. And of course, the night course was terrible because they tried to teach everything in tables. Mm -hmm. And by that point, we were getting to the HTML and CSS. So uh, I then went on the Adobe tutorial forum or site or whatever it was back then and, and, and basically learned coding from there and blindly just got some clients and it terrifies me now. I think (laughs) I literally knew nothing, did, did some quite hefty websites for people. I think this is quite a common, I think a lot of people kind of started off 
just going, yeah, I'll do your website. Don't really know what I'm doing, but okay. So it's kind of how I started it. And then I thought, the more I learned, the more I thought, I don't know anything at all. So I thought, right, I need to get an actual job at an agency. And the first job I went for, the guy called Sean Johnson, <laughs> who uh, everybody might know now as my co-host of the freelance web, he, he was interviewing me for it. So he loved to say I heard Liz into her first <laughs> design job. Um, and yeah, m- miraculously, I got the job. And that was just an amazing experience after that. I um, worked with just a brilliant team of guys who I'm still really good friends with all of them now. Loved every minute. And when I say guys, I mean men. Um, there, there, were, there were no women in, in the, the kind of design. And, and we worked with a development team. So we had to design and then we would code up our sort of CSS HTML code up the site and then we'd pass that over to the um, developers who would build into their CMS. I worked with some amazing clients then as well. So I stayed there for a few years, worked up to kind of senior design executive. I think that was my time, which I never to this day really understood what that meant. It just was like pay, pay grades. And then I, because of my daughter, who was at that time sort of starting secondary school and she was at a different part of away from where I work, I was like, I, I'm really struggling to kind of do all the mum things and do a full-time job and stuff and because I, I was raising her on my own and um, didn't really have any kind of support network. So I then was like, I'm just going to go freelance. Sounds easy. So luckily I went to my boss and said, look, John, who has really, really gotten well with, like I, I, you know, can't really do this kind of full-time lark anymore. It's, I was getting, it was a very high pressure job because I was, managing products from start to finish and traveling all over the country and then also doing designs and we had huge crazy targets to hit every week like a lot of these agencies I think at the time Mm. and the the pressure was kind of getting crazy and trying to be kind of a mum as well and I said look I've got to go freelance and he said will you freelance for us so it was a brilliant start to my freelance career I'm very lucky and we kind of I did that for a while, ended up parting ways. But by that point, I'd built up a client base. Most of my clients then were, it was what we called web design now then, which was, you know, UX now and UI. And I'd done branding within that role at the agency. So it was something I was really confident with. That was part of the projects. They were full service projects. So branding, website, everything, print design, the whole lot. So I kind of felt that I had a lot of strings to my bow. And then I went through it. So that was probably eight years ago, I think. I can't believe I've been putting myself through this for eight years. But, um, (laughs) you know, that time's flown. And that's kind of more from UX design to kind of focusing more in on branding, I think. Was it a good decision? Have you have you had a good eight years? Have you ever regretted it? Oh, that's a really... T- I've regretted it a hundred times at least. You know, I can't deny that and say it's been necessary because of just how my life is structured and stuff, how I, I've kind of had to be there for my daughter. So it's been necessary, but it's been tough. And there's times when I've been so tempted to go back to a full-time role just to take that financial worry away. Because it's tough being worried about money all the time. Brings us on to a recent article you wrote for Smashing Magazine called uh, Making Peace with the Feast or Famine of Freelancing. Yeah. And now you're talking about the sort of stresses that the irregular nature of of work can put on an individual freelancer, Mm -hmm. particularly when that work isn't coming in, new inquiries aren't aren't coming in. Absolutely. Was this something that you were aware of right from the start or was it it something that you sort of discovered as, as time went on? What's bizarre is that I think you're always told to specialise, you know, specialise, specialise. 
And I did specialize. I, I went in specializing into branding. And as I sort of said before, there's not a huge amount of work constantly. If you're a logo designer there's a, and you're doing 200 pounds a pop, kind of logos there's a lot of work out there for you but I really wanted to get you know do full branding I'm and I guess I made this decision about a year ago before I was doing design which I guess was UX design graphic design print design so there's always a lot more work coming in the projects were probably not I mean now when the projects come in they're, they're really you know good value projects but I think then it was a lot more regular small work Hmm. and everyone seems to dismiss that say no no you need the big projects with all the money but actually those small projects as well do keep you ticking over and I think that I found that I had really dropped the ball at the beginning of of this year I'd I'd had a couple of really big projects and then I'd had a last minute project come in in February and dropped everything to do it. It was a three-week turnaround and it was doing some print design for a company that I've worked with for years and years. And they're absolutely amazing, but they always have insane deadlines. (laughs) And they're like, we need to do all of this in three weeks time. And they pay amazingly. So it was one of those like, well, I'm just going to drop everything. And for those three weeks, I was also house sitting for my parents because they're in Australia and they have a massive farm. So I was like looking after the farm and doing, so my whole days were just mad. At the end of that time, I also got ill. I was I went to Copenhagen. I got quite ill with a bit of a health, quite a serious health scare. So for a month, I literally was laid on the sofa. And then at the end of that month, I, I kind of was like, oh, I'm getting better. And I had results come back and everything was okay. And I was like, oh, God, like I have really, you know, I need to get some work in right this second. So then someone give me some work now. So yeah, it hasn't been a problem that I've had the whole time I've definitely had times when it's been quiet and I've had like a week or two and I'm like oh but this was a long period of time of real like dawning on me that things were not great yeah it seems to be one of those things not just the the financial pressure that a freelancer can feel if they haven't got new inquiries coming Mm. in there seems to be a lot of sort of stress and anxiety and things that even if things are okay financially even if you've got a bit of a buffer Mm. it seems like there's a disproportionate amount of stress that it puts Mm. on an individual just with the the worry Mm. what did you learn about that in your research for the article yeah I mean that was probably my biggest um revelation during that time and I think that's what I really wanted to write the article about was that I had a buffer luckily because I'd done these three big projects and you know a bit like everybody you have like loads of work come in and you're crazy and you invoice it all and you're like oh I'm rich and then um you know you forget that it has to last you for like however long it is till your next project comes in so I had a buffer but it was that slow dawning realization that nobody I was contacting wanted to work with me and immediately I think as a quite a sensitive person a creative person I assumed that was because my work wasn't up to scratch and I was you know really losing my touch and maybe I was in the wrong industry and and that was really painful to start to to realize that and I thought well this is all I do this is my this is all I can do like I'm I'm terrible at what I do for a living like but I I'm not you know unfortunately I'm not secretly a qualified doctor or lawyer I can't just fall back on those things and you know it takes a long time to become a lawyer even if I wanted to be one so it was all that kind of thing 
And it was sort of a, a day when I, I thought, I'm, I think I need to write about this kind of mental health side of this. Because, yeah, what money worry is, is definitely, you know, debilitating. But thinking, well, I'm never going to get any more work because everybody's realized that I'm actually really bad at what I do was worse. And I kind of tweeted out about this. And just the, it was just an overwhelming um, kind of group of, of tweets that came in just saying, oh, yeah, I feel exactly the same way, you know, like from really the best designers we have in the industry saying it as well, which you, you know, from the outside, you assume that they're doing really well and they never have these problems, but they have times when it's quiet and, and um, you know, it really affects their mental health as well and so yeah I was like right I think other people need to realize that other people feel you know everyone needs to know that other people feel like this as well and that it's perfectly normal to feel like that. In talking to people did you discover any sort of strategies that people had for coping with that situation? Yeah it was great to talk to people about this because I find when I become that worried and I almost become catatonic with worry whereas I can't I can't do anything else because my whole mind is weighed down with this this worry and it would be a case of sitting at my desk all day you know sending out emails you're reeking of desperation when you send out these kind of emails so people can tell it a mile off and um you know you're not getting anything back and I'd do that for like eight solid hours and then I'd go and watch Netflix or whatever and I'd be like oh my god so so many people came up with so many great ideas like side projects um, you know, creative projects, running, walking outside. I mean, walking is a big part of my life anyway. Up your gymming. You know, if you are if you like fitness, start going to the gym more because that is only going to be beneficial for your, you know, it gets you out of it. It gets you out of your head when you're doing stuff like that. There's a wonderful chap. Let me just find his name. He got in contact because he lives in New York, uh, Jesse Gardner. And he created this wonderful project called Troy Stories because he lived in Troy in New York. So he basically had got desperate in the depths of kind of worry about work and stuff. And he'd started going out onto his surrounding area and just talking to people and photographing them and just finding out their story. And it was just a beautiful project. It really is. His work's gorgeous. And I think it it kind of just saved his sanity going out and and connecting people and hearing other people's story. Because then, you you know, it's not all about you then, is it? It's about other people and their kind of lives as well. So there's some really, really good recommendations there. A lot of like, do some art, you know, cook some food. Yeah, do something creative because we're creative people generally who are in this industry. And I think when you're being, well, you're telling yourself that, well, I'm rubbish at creativity. I'm not, you know, I can't even get paid for it anymore. To do something else creative is really helpful. Uh, underlying message in lots of those is just sort of be productive. Yeah. To find something that you can be doing that will keep you engaged and, and sort of keep the juices flowing. Yeah. And stop you worrying about this this huge kind of thing in your life as well. And I think like I was just spending eight hours a day just applying for jobs, applying for jobs that had nothing to do with what I did for a living, just applying for anything. It was crazy. You know, I, I think I went a little bit crazy at the time. And then, you know, contacting people and have you got any work? Have you got any work? Just all day. And I think like if I probably had done that 
an hour a day and then or two hours a day because you do still have to do that you still have to look for work and then spent the other time I could have done my portfolio there's no there's a million jobs I, I could have done at the time that I, I just couldn't get my head around and now sort of after having those conversations really starting to put some of those into practice did begin to to really help in the article, you've put together a sort of toolkit, a feast or famine toolkit. Yeah. Which is kind of like a, a nine-step program <laughs> yeah. of things you can do that uh, that touches on a lot of these. And I think it's a really great read. Lots of good ideas in there. Thank you. Yes, things like getting out into nature, as you say, sort yeah. of running and walking and those yeah. sorts of things. That's certainly something that I find really helps. Absolutely. Even when I'm busy with lots of work. I think as well, like these, these are all things we should be doing when we're really busy, you know, so that we kind of because I think when you're very very busy it's very easy to just completely focus on that work and think I can't do anything else I just have to focus on this work and then that you know that might drop off suddenly and you're like oh I'm completely at a loss so I think if you have these things in your life all the time then you know it's much less terrifying when suddenly you're like well I must start a hobby now because things have gone quite or I must suddenly start running I think yeah and I do, you know there's a lot to be said for releasing endorphins through exercise it can make you feel a hundred thousand times better and it and my daughter's at uni now and she's under a lot of pressure doing her degree and stuff and I keep saying to go you know just go to the gym she's like oh god I can't I've got so much reading to I went to the gym last night and put the phone up and was like, Mum, you know, I feel really great after going to the gym. I'm like, I'm not going to say I told you so. She said, I just feel so much happier. And so I'm like, yeah, I think I think we've all proven that endorphins, you know, are, are good for you. So I really do think there's some benefit in that. I think as well, there's a lot of, of benefit. I mean, you talk about doing side projects and taking up sort of creative hobbies and, and things. Of course, the there's value in in not only sort of fueling your creative mind mm. but also that i mean some of those might turn into work in themselves i totally agree but i think there's also don't start a side project with that in mind because then it just becomes another chore and i think i'm definitely guilty of that the minute that i come up with something i quite like to do i think well how can i make money out of this like i made marmalade at the weekend i've never made marmalade in my life before for maybe this could be a sideline oh this marmalade is really good I think no you made it because you're you're it's like one of those particular processes that you go through like don't start thinking this could be a business I'm very bad at that so I think I think it's great to have side projects and but I think the ones that do end up being successful and maybe becoming part of your career aren't necessarily started with that goal in sight I think the ones that are started with that goal in sight often don't work because they just become a real chore like Jessica Hish with her drop caps I think that was she did that for pleasure and fun and that's become something she's so well known for but I think you know if you set out going well I'm going to create these amazing things and hopefully it will turn into yeah I think that sometimes then adds that further pressure and I'm and when I said like pursue creative I mean they can be I mean I'm a I'm a real sad geek and I really like like doing even like a puzzle or something you know something that really is just mind-numbingly there's no end there's no kind well there is because you've completed the puzzle but I mean there's no kind of like creative obvious creative like oh I can I can show everyone how great my puzzle is it's just literally my it's like making marmalade you know it's just mind-numbing process basically and I guess there's a sort of happy happy medium with those as well for for a creative person maybe doing some personal work just something that where the inspiration takes them and something that they feel like doing sharing it on dribble might yeah might attract some attention uh, that brings in some regular work 
Yeah, absolutely. And that really worked for me at the beginning of my career because I, wow, this is this is really taxing the old memory. But when I first went freelance, I thought, okay, I'm going to create an amazing CV. And this is not such a thing these days. I think people are a bit snobby around CVs, but there used to be some really creative, amazing CVs. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. I've got a bit of quiet time. I'm going to do that. And I just went to town and shared it on, I can't remember, maybe it was Dribble. If that was, yeah, that was probably around then. And I actually did quite quite a bit of work from that just because it was really creative and I'd gone crazy. But now I feel like I'm more nervous about sharing those things. I think I think the more I've learned and the kind of more embedded into the industry I've got, I'm now less keen to share those things. And I think it's because maybe the tone's changed a little bit on Twitter and things like that. And people can be, they can really, you know, be very critical. <laughs> yeah, I think back then, ooh, she sounds very old. Back then, it was more of a kind of supportive, like, oh, this is amazing kind of thing, rather than, well, I think you should do this. I personally wouldn't have done that, you know. It's a, yeah, so I think that that has definitely worked for me in the, in the past, going back, back to your point, like just letting loose. And also, maybe even do things without thinking, well, nobody's ever, you know, nobody's ever going to see this. So let's just go crazy. It doesn't matter. It can be all the worst kind of things you've ever been taught not to do, but just go crazy because they can reap amazing rewards. We mentioned briefly about sort of being too busy and when all the work then comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stress is pretty much the same when the work's piling up. I mean, yeah. I mean, I got really poorly at the beginning of the year because of that. It'd been a very quiet Christmas and been very worried. And then it had gone, it exploded with work. And as I said, I'd agreed to do this stupid house sitting, which is always incredibly stressful. And I actually made myself, you know, I got quite poorly. Yeah. So it's exactly the same. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just so familiar to a lot of freelancers. I think this, I'm too busy for anything else kind of thing when it gets to that. I must do it. I can't possibly turn it down or say that I can't do it for a couple of weeks because they might go somewhere else. And there's this kind of pressure to take it all on if it comes in. But then you can be managing, you know, four or five, five thousand pound projects at once. And that is extremely stressful in itself because that isn't something you'd really, you know, find in a workplace necessarily. You'd have a support team around you. So, yeah, I think as a freelancer, there's also, you know, all the admin side of stuff and all that kind of thing and life that you have to do outside of work. So that can be increasingly stressful, I think. And really, you should be managing your time better. I mean, I'm the last person to comment on this. I'm saying this to myself, you should be managing your time better. But, you know, if, if clients are coming to you and saying, we've got this deadline you're in charge. You can say to them, actually, no, I can't. if you really want me to do this, I can't do this for a couple of weeks. So I think you do have to manage your time well. That's part, you know, as a freelancer, you have to be very good at those kind of things, a lot of things. You can't just be a great designer. You have to be really good at managing your time and being motivated. And you have to be a good boss to yourself, I think. And not an abusive boss, which I think a lot of us are quite abusive to. You know, we 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 are like stay at your desk all day. You know, have lunch at your desk, and then there is no boss in the real world would ever be allowed to treat you like that at all. So I think we have to be really good bosses to ourselves, and you know, have time outside of work because it's so easy for for it to be just work and then die in front of the TV in the evening or Xbox or whatever, or whatever the kids are playing on these days. Liz, freelancing sounds awful. I know it does, doesn't it? Well, how am I doing? Is there anything good about it? 
<laughs> there is so much good about it. like amazing people that I've met, amazing community that I'm part of online. Um, you know, having time to go and have really long walks with the dogs or go and take a day off or go to London for this, go, you know, go and do that. The traveling that I get to do more and more as I get bigger projects in is so exciting as well. Being able to write and get paid to write is a dream of mine. It's amazing. And I wouldn't have that opportunity if I, well, necessarily have that opportunity if I work somewhere else. There's so many good things about it. You know, seeing a project from start to finish through and it being successful is so satisfying the workshop I mentioned earlier you know writing that from scratch and then delivering it and it being successful was such a high it really was you know knowing I could engage nine people ten people for a five hours and keep them interested in what we were doing was really really exciting for me so there's so many good things about it you know, you're in charge of your own time, you're in charge of what you do. And it's worth remembering that because I think it's really easy to just, you know, you go freelancing because you want more kind of control or autonomy. And then you just work exactly like you did in a job. <laughs> you know, like exactly the same. You think we might as well have stayed in a job and had a regular income if you're going to do that. You know, you need to be flexible and work what, what which way works best for you. And I guess it's that that flexibility that enables you to to work around whatever your sort of um, family circumstances that yeah absolutely yeah and I've been lucky in that over the years I've kind of had great bosses and stuff and they've always been really understanding about the fact that I was a, a lone parent I've been a lone parent since she was tiny but as she got older weirdly that became more of a chance because she needed me to be there you know more often particularly through those teenage years when I think you know it, it's painful and hard being a teenager and you need your mum there and your dad there and to have that flexibility to be able to have spent that time with with my daughter now is is look back on that it's just so lovely the other thing we mustn't underestimate is we can go on holiday outside of school holiday times so that's absolutely great you can be really flexible with when you go on holiday what you do with that kind of thing because I found with work I was always pressured to go during the summer when it was a bit quieter but it was always like hideously expensive because everybody else was on holiday then so yeah there's a there's a ton of you know you can take a Friday off and you can go to somewhere for the weekend but yeah, no, there's so much good about it. I mean, I would not be doing it if I uh, deep down didn't prefer it to being employed. And I, I think as well, it's a long time since I was employed. And it's easy sometimes to look back with rose tinted spectacles. But there's a reason I went freelance. <laughs> you know, it was highly pressurized. And I really at times couldn't see a way through the kind of stress and pressure of it. So yeah, there's pressure with freelancing, but you can manage it yourself. You've not got somebody above telling you what to do. It's smashing. So here at Smashing, we're all about learning with Smash Magazine and the books and conferences. I think it's an industry where we've got to be learning new stuff all the time. So one of the things I like to ask the guests on the podcast is, you know, what have you been learning in your work lately? Well, I'm really lucky. Um, um, a very, It's very pertinent to what we've been discussing today is that I'm learning to run a business. I'm learning to be a businesswoman and not just a designer now. And doing that through reading and also through working with coaches. I've worked with a couple of coaches. I've worked with Paul Boag. I'm also working with Christopher Murphy as well, who's helping me. It's it's great saying I'm a brand designer and I like doing branding, but 
how do you turn that into a business, you know, which regularly pays the bills and regularly, you know, has work come in. So I'm just, yeah, I'm working through that at the moment. And it's very exciting. I really love learning that side. It makes you feel so much more empowered and controlled to be able to learn proper marketing and proper like networking and how to target the people I want to work with and identifying who I want to work with and stuff. It's very empowering. So I've been learning that. I'm also learning like really getting back into UX design and stuff because I love that. I love what I do. I love branding, but I really um, kind of enjoy the UX side of stuff as well. So I'm kind of brushing up on that and learning a bit more about that again as it's something that I, I still had always done, but I'm like, no, I need to really actively learn more about this now. Yeah, it's exciting. Lots of learning going on here at the moment. <laughs> so you've got a couple of podcasts. Yes, I have. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I have The Elastic Brand, which is a podcast that began sort of about digital brand design but I think through the course of doing it I've realized talking to people that you know it's brand design as I said before so um yeah that's really exciting uh for me I get to talk to brilliant designers not necessarily brand designers but all kinds of different designers and marketing people you know just discussing what all the aspects of a brand you know like the the storytelling the brand values and and how your customers feel so and also things like accessibility and uh inclusivity and stuff which aren't things that have necessarily really come up in branding particularly so and then I have another podcast called the freelance web that's been going on for a fair old time now but and we had a big hiatus for a while but we're doing it again but we never get a chance to actually record so when we do see each other we record about eight back to back and that's basically just talking about freelancing which is you know ironic by looking at the uh, article I wrote for Smashing Mag about how r- rubbish I'd been at freelancing. We talk about, you know, what to do and what not to do. But it's basically just a conversation about what we've done. And that's with Sean, who is the guy responsible for hiring me into my first digital role, as he likes to tell people. We have a lot to thank him for. <laughs> oh, so much. Do I? Do I really have a lot? <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> I do, definitely. But yeah, so we've got those two. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. If you, dear listener, would like to find out more about Liz or hire her to work on your digital brand, you can find her website at elizabethelcote.com and she's at Liz underscore E on Twitter. (laughs) Her excellent Elastic Brand podcast and the Freelance Web are both available to find wherever you listen to your podcasts. Liz, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Do you have any parting words? Don't let me put you off freelancing. It really is wonderful and rewarding and everything that people say it is, as long as you're proactive and you take time to look after yourself. This is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at Smashing Mag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook or in the supermarket by the cat food.